The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Uh, you know, obviously, where we are in the world, Don. Good morning, and, Scott. Uh, good morning, Mitch, and Don to you. Uh, <laughs> obviously, where we are with the, uh, you know, coming out of this global pandemic and such, uh, and now spring is here, uh, we can certainly feel things picking up, man. Uh, we're seeing it in inflation as well. You can feel that the, the economy is starting to take off. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it has been for a while. This whole pandemic, uh, you know, there was obviously a lot of scare at the beginning. Not sure what's going to happen. Interest rates lower to one of the lowest ever, if not lowest ever. And with the low interest rates, real estate market took off. And, you know, that plus it was almost a perfect storm with the pandemic. Then, of course, people want to move out of the city, not be in condos, start buying houses instead and cottages and pretty much every spot of land. All of a sudden, no matter where you lived, was all of a sudden in demand because it didn't matter where you lived anymore. You could work remotely. And so why should I be in the city? Rather, I could be out in, who knows, God's country somewhere and still work effectively. So all of a sudden it put a demand for house prices everywhere in Ontario. And it got to, it's getting to the point, and we're having this topic, you know, certainly with my clients' kids. So I call it the, you know, the more of the millennial generation, you know, how are they ever going to afford a house? Yeah. And and, you know, should they even afford a house? And parents are helping dramatically in buying houses, which also is adding more fuel for the fire because that also puts more demand on the prices and they go up even further. So there's so many moving parts. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it is not normal for there to be a lineup of buyers at every property and bidding up houses. That has not been the norm for the last, I don't know, 37 years. I've been around uh, post-secondary. How about you, Scott? No, absolutely correct. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we remember, I remember my parents saying uh, back in the day when they bought their house in the mid 60s, you know, and, and the interest rate was six and a quarter percent or what have you. Uh, we, we all thought, oh my goodness, how would it ever uh, be so low compared to what we were used to? And, and now look where it is, as you said, very historic lows. And, um, and, you know, you have to wonder if this is the new norm, what it does mean for the next generation. Yeah, and, and speaking of the next generation, I have one of my favorite millennials here on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought Mitch was here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious who his other favorite millennial is at this point. Yeah, so you, do have a, you do have a sister. You do have a sister. Remember that. But all right, um, she's just yeah, on that but, edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it was interesting. I thought it'd be great to have your viewpoint on this, Mitch. Yeah, and thanks, Suze. Definitely home prices have been a big topic for lots of people my age. And it's a big topic here as well, renting versus buying a home in Canada, which is the better choice. Uh, you've probably heard it's always better to buy when you can afford to do so. But the truth is, it depends. And like you mentioned there, the lifestyle of the pandemic has changed things. Uh, remote, wor remote work, uh, people can work from all over the world. And still, your, your job could be in Hamilton, Toronto, Ontario, anywhere. But you could be working in Florida, South Carolina, if you don't have to actually be in the office. And 
it, so do you actually want to buy a house? There's a lot of pros and cons to each decision here. And one of them is the, uh, the stability. So owning your own residence creates a stability that's hard to achieve through renting. This uh, helps bring peace of mind when you want to live in the same place for a long time. And that's great. If your job or circumstances don't require you to move often, then the flexibility of a lease agreement can be better than a mortgage. It is easier to take a break from a lease than it is to move or sell a home. It may be wise to rent when trying to decide where to live uh, instead of just diving right in and buying a place to live in. Maybe you want to try a condo first downtown and then move to a house or vice versa. Both houses and condos have benefits and cons to them as well. Uh, condos and townhomes, they typically come with condo fees. Trying them each before buying may be the best solution to do because also houses, you're going to have all this upkeep. You're going to have, uh, you're going to have uh, snow removal. You're going to have lawn care. And those are other factors that are going to come into play here because condos, you're not going to have to do that, but you also pay a large fee monthly to do so. Uh, another big thing when buying a house is building home equity. This is often the biggest reason why people buy a home is along with the stability. With every mortgage payment, you'll own a bit more of your home every time. This preaches something we talk about all the time in this form of paying yourself monthly, whether that's paying yourself by investing in a TFSA, RSP, or even paying a mortgage monthly. All of these forms are paying yourself and improving your situation constantly. The more that you pay down your mortgage, the more equity in your home you'll have. And assuming this is your principal residence, this is going to grow tax-free. So if you start, if you start at a house you know and you won't be at, and you won't be at forever, you're at least building an investment that's going to grow tax-free. And then when the time comes to move, you'll be able to move, sell the principal residence you're in and upgrade to a house that you want. There are not there are not many forms of tax-free growth. Uh, RSP is going to be tax-free, but it's going to be taxable when it comes out. The TFSA is the only is really the only tax-free investment account that you have besides your principal residence. Uh, and there's a cap on that of 81,500. So a principal residence, uh, as long as they keep it the same is a big tax-free investment that you have. You have the ability to sell it tax-free and move up to a different house that you like. So versus renting, it may be cheaper to rent, and uh, but that might be your only answer if you don't have the down payment. So you mentioned the bank of mom and dad there. Uh, it's becoming more common and common for sure. And uh, parents are trying to get their kids into the market. And right now it's it's kind of uncertain which way the market's going to go at this point. Is it going to, the supply is so low. So the housing market is just such high demand. There's so much demand and houses are going for two, three, 400,000 over asking constantly with 40 to 50 bids. And they basically take the best one with no conditions at this point. It's a wild west out there right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a struggle. And, and again, you have the bank of mom and dad's funding a lot of this demand. I also know um, when prices start to move, you're finding a lot of investors right now. That's what um, I was going to mention, Don. How much of this is not people like Mitch and, and, and his peers trying to buy homes, but people who are buying them as investments. And, you know, if you've got three or four, obviously you're taking three or four families out of the mix. Exactly. Now, their argument is at least I'm adding to the rental market, which is also yeah. tight. Yeah. But you're absolutely right when you're they are and there's now companies in Toronto buying places here in Hamilton as as an investment vehicle to get rent and so and, and you're seeing this more and more now this didn't happen a whole lot in the 90s when there was no increase in real estate so this is kind of like looking in the rearview mirror and then buying an investment that has gone up and you know they do go up over time but so do most equity investments so but if something like one in ten 
um, houses sold now are for investment purposes. So yeah, that does add to the mix of demand. And again, what Mitch just said, a low supply. Yeah, and they, the cost of all of these going up so much is forcing people to overextend themselves just that little bit more. And it's a common term that we're seeing all the time and it's called being house poor. Mm. <laughs> so you're, you're overextending yourself more and you're putting all of your money that you have saved up for years into this house and it's not like you can sell doors to live off of so you're technically house poor mm -hmm. you, you you're so you have this house that you want but you your whole lifestyle is gone so you don't have the ability to go eat where you want travel do the stuff that your life you enjoy doing so it, it's one thing to get into the housing market and have that investment of forced savings but if you're not able to do the things that you enjoy it's it's not it might not be as good. You might is want it to really, is it that much different than it was, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in the sense that, you know, I, I remember my parents saying, well, I could never afford to buy this house again because when they bought it, it was in the middle of the sticks. There was farmland between us and the rest of the world. And, and now that has developed. So I think we're also forgetting that the greater Toronto Hamilton area is now a primo spot. Uh, not only in Ontario, not only in Canada, but in the world. And it's mm -hmm. like living in New York City or such. And as you were referring to earlier, Mitch, with technology, you know, you can go out, you can go into the places that, you know, um, Grimsby and Kitchener was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, as opposed to what it is now, which are booming neighborhoods. Yeah, you look at Hamilton, for example, it's been booming. It's I guess twenty five point five percent rate of return just last year, and that's huge. That's not normal. You look at from nineteen eighty to two thousand sixteen, the average rate of return in Canada was actually four point one percent, and last year Hamilton did twenty five and a half, and Toronto was around nine point one. So a lot of people from uh, Toronto are actually moving out of Toronto and they're moving slightly further as it is because housing markets are slightly less expensive, but they're creeping up and they're actually catching up to Toronto as it is right now. Yeah. So um, they're moving to Mississauga, then Mississauga is getting outpriced. They're moving to Burlington, Hamilton and Burlington, Hamilton, Halton area has been one of the best performing, uh, most in increased pricing for hosts in the last few years. So everyone's moving slightly further from Toronto because of the pandemic and the ability to work remotely. They don't have to live downtown to, to work there anymore. And uh, if you just take an example here, if you put 186,000 into a non-registered account and it was earning 6% for 30 years, and you take that's one scenario. So you're renting and you're going to pay $2,530 a month in rent, which is pretty common at this point in lots of areas. Versus buying a $850,000 home with that $186,000 down payment. And you have roughly $3,600 in monthly costs to factor in your property tax, home ownership, and all of the other costs there. And your house is growing at 3% for 30 years. At the end of this 30 years, you sell both the non-registered and the mortgage, uh, the house. You actually end up with $2.25 million in the after non-reg. So you're taxed at the full amount, 53.5% because it's over that threshold. And uh, so you end up with 2.25 million after tax in the non-registered years versus 1.97 million. Uh, so there's a case for each side here. We're going to take a break right there. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 
888-789-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, uh, Don and Mitch. Uh, Mitch, you were just finishing up a thought. We had some uh, technical difficulties there. So if you just want to finish the numbers that you were giving out at the end of the last segment there, just so we can follow up. Yeah, thanks, Scott. So to continue on from that, the 186,000 put into a non-registered versus putting the 186,000 into a down payment of that home, it actually ended up that the non-registered investment after 30 years would, after selling it, would be worth 2.25 million. And the home, if you sell the home after 30 years, be worth 1.97. And this is all after tax, which is about $300,000 difference. Uh, So coming out renting, it could make more sense financially, but there's other factors to this that fits your lifestyle. Is it uh, renting may fit your lifestyle better or home ownership to have the mentality of security of owning something. So there are benefits to each side here. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great point, Mitch. It's uh, Canadians love home ownership. I, I know there's some places in Europe that they don't even think about home ownership. It's always out of reach. And so renting is a way of life. So they've already made a, a paradigm shift of renting and saving versus Canadians generally say, OK, I always have my house. My house is kind of my backdrop of my retirement plan. And it works out great and it has worked out great for many, many years because after, you know, 30, 40 years, they've always got this and perhaps way, way down when they have to downside to assisted living, they can use the house. Do you think we are, I mean, you know, let's be honest, a global pandemic, it's one of those once in a lifetime scenarios. It's a, a once, once in a 100 year um, uh, situation, hopefully. Um, yes. Do you think we're facing a major shift here or, or do you think things will continue the way they are or how do you see this in the next five years and i know you don't have a crystal ball yeah i i don't have a crystal ball but what i can say is generally speaking when equity investments they generally revert to the mean in terms of return so if the return has been as mitch mentioned four percent four point one percent or you know equities have averaged six and a half percent above inflation that is just the norm so when things get way out of whack there's usually a reckoning and it doesn't mean necessarily they'll, they'll drop in value, which they could, but it could mean a very flat market for years to offset those really big years. Right. And then things back average back out because if it's too good to be true, it, it always is. It's not usually, yeah. it always yeah. is. And, and you know, you're, you're talking about housing prices in Hamilton as Mitch was last segment. Uh, there's a perfect example. And Mitch was saying how much the increase has been over a period of time. But remember, Prior to that, the prices were below. So they've sort of made up to where they were, that average or norm, as you said, and then jump, you know, onto the froth per se, or 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 yeah. the wave that everybody's riding. That's for sure. And and again, that whole rent versus own. Well, yes, owning and you have this house and it's a lifestyle choice. But the thing with renters, and this is the biggest thing, and I know Mitch, uh, we chatted about this earlier, it's the discipline. Does a renter have the discipline? to put money away. Mm. And the nice thing about a mortgage payment, the bank will come knocking on your door 
asking for the keys if you continually not make mortgage payments. Yeah. Uh, and so if you're renting for a lot less, then you might be able to save that difference and you have to have the discipline to do so. Yeah, it's not the renting that's necessarily a waste of money. It's the wasting the money that you could have been saving compared to that. So instead of putting that $500 a month, let's say it's the difference of the mortgage and renting, instead of putting that away into a TFSA, you're spending that on food or something, going on trips, et cetera, right? Absolutely. And people generally spend it on lifestyle because what I've found when people have paid off their mortgages, they let's say it was $1,000 a month mortgage. It's like, wow, I can't afford to save that anymore. I don't know how the heck I could ever afford that mortgage payment. And yeah. it just disappears. It just disappears. Next thing you know, there's a new car in the driveway. They got new appliances. Well, if they had continued with the mortgage payment, those things would never have appeared. So there's a bump in lifestyle. And that is our, to be honest, that is the biggest competition for your financial freedom is your lifestyle. That is where we, you always have rationalizations of saying, I need this, I need this. Well, do you really need it or do you want it? And so at the end of the day, when you're 65, all these many decisions you've made will have an impact on are you financially independent or aren't you? So one person that has been the guru of investing for over six decades, six decades, like that's, he's been doing this for over 60 years. And there's only one person probably will come to mind is Warren Buffett. He has written an annual letter to his shareholders. He started investing, by the way, when he's 11. So just to put in perspective, okay? This guy knows what he's doing. He is now 91. Hey, if everybody started investing at 11, they'd all be Warren Buffett's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had an interest and a passion at that time. And it's a, it's, he's an incredible human being. And he's added a lot of knowledge and sensibility to things. And I, I've always been a, a great admirer of him. Um, and so the one thing that's kind of cool is him and Charlie Munger, by the way, Charlie Munger is sidekick, so to speak. He's more the one that doesn't the front men, but always very active in the investing also. And he's always sitting on stage in their annual general meeting. Those two, well, Charlie Munger is a young 98 years old. He's up there still working at age 98. So, yes, they have hired other people to take over from him. But he's been running this Berkshire Hathaway fund. Now, that's his own kind of investment. And they've been buying companies um, like Geico. You hear Geico, well, Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway owns all of Geico. So, it's not traded on the stock market. He owns the whole thing. He also owns individual stocks. His largest stock holding has been Apple. Um, that's a fairly recent one. He went full in on Apple a few years back. Uh, Coca-Cola was another one. American Express was another one. So, But he, he's got a, a really interesting way of doing things and a, a lot of quotes. But it's kind of funny because many times he's been written off. Um, over the last 56 years, since 1965, he has been below the S&P 500 18 times. So he hasn't beaten the market every year. He's not right all the time. So one third of the time, he has not beat the market, so to speak. He's just been below the S&P 500. In fact, uh, last year, he barely beat it, like within a percent. And the year before, he was well behind because all those growth state growth stocks of uh, because of the pandemic, he wasn't involved in any of these. He's not a big believer of that segment. So, you know, there, I, I had a lot of clients saying, well, look at the S&P 500, which is the top 500 companies, they're split between value, kind of your safe, kind of, you know, industrial banks kind of stocks 
versus the growth stocks, which are many, mostly are technology, they were all the rage. So when you average the two, there's a lot of growth stocks that were booming up the, the, the stock market prices. Well, he doesn't have a lot in that area. Um, Apple would be the exception, but most people would say, well, Apple's such a large company, we can't really call it a, a growth stock anymore. It's kind of a, a hybrid. But at the end of the day, all of a sudden he didn't know very much two years ago, and now he's doing great again. Everybody, he's been making the news, his, his shares have been going up, and all of a sudden he's a genius again. Well, he hasn't changed the thing. His style has always been the same. In fact, out of these 56 years, as, as I mentioned, 18 times he was below the S&P 500, 10 times he was about the same, and 28 times he beat it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a different type of investment. And, but what I love about him most, he still has these big AGMs. He's been he used to play in a family picnic every year, playing baseball. It's a big gathering of a shareholder. He absolutely loves what he does. And he has come out with so many um, different quotes over the years. And, uh, but just to, before I get to that, a lot of the things are um, uh, in his latest letter, he said, you know, they are not stock pickers, first thing. They own a meaningful amount of first-class companies with a first-class CEO. So hence why he bought Apple. He feels it's a first-class company, and he loves the CEO. Um, you know, deceptive, this is the other, these are just quotes from his last, last uh, letter. Deceptive adjustment in earnings. A polite description, which he says is a polite description, has been more frequent and more fanciful as the stocks have risen. Basically, he's finding that people are saying, making some adjustments to their earnings, which are probably not true, like they're borderline. And so he said to be less politically, um, politely rather, bull markets breed belivited bull. I had to look at what belivited mean. It means <laughs> pompous, rant, overconfident, eddy. It basically, he like the mean. It's funny how Trump's name came up when yeah. I looked up the word "bolivited." <laughs> so anyway, um, long-term interest rates do push up stocks, but they also push up prices, as we just talked about: apartments, farms, oil wells, etc. They make everything go up. So everybody looks really good when interest rates drop. Um, he always says, "I'm always has a cash holding." For him, it's like an insurance policy. He never wants to feel that he has to go to the market to borrow. Okay, so he always has a feeling, a position of strength. And he loves speaking to university students. And for that matter, he, loves, he, he goes to a lot of uh, students. One, he said the best uh, advice he got was when, when he was speaking to a grade five-year-olds, grade fives. And he goes, he's speaking to everybody and nobody's really paying a whole lot of attention to him. Now, these are grade fives. They don't even know a whole lot about investments. And finally, he started talking about Coca-Cola. And he says, and they have a secret formula. Whoa, the word secret. As soon as the word secret formula came out, all of a sudden, all the grade fives loved it. And he says, okay, I got to make sure that if grade fives love secrets, I know everybody else loves secrets too. <laughs> so he now has that part of his secret sauce, so to speak. But lots of quotes. And... You know, I, I, here's a, just a few of them. Um, if you don't find a way to make money while you sleep, you'll work until you die. And that was really about investing. You have to invest money. You're, if Otherwise, you're going to be a slave to your labor. And so 
you have to put money away into some type of investment that will be earning money all the time. Um, the investment, the best investment you can make is an investment in yourself. The more you learn, the more you'll earn. And learning doesn't end at university. Learning is ongoing. You constantly have to learn. And this is, um, I always like the one phrase commencement because commencement means, means to start. But yet they're always at the end of a learning stage. Yeah. And so he is a big learner. In fact, he will spend 80% of his time just thinking and writing down notes and, and trying to suggest, trying to think of things that should be done. So just doing doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a lot. Um, to our point before, um, do not save what's left after spending, but spend what is left after saving. Mm -hmm. And that is really comes down to pay yourself first. Yeah. That is talk about the secret sauce. That is the secret sauce of a financial planner or any kind of anybody that is financially independent, unless they won a lottery or inherited a bunch of money. That is the whole thing right there. You know, put yourself ahead of spending, set an amount and then adjust your lifestyle around that saving. So he says he looks for three things in a person, intelligence, energy and integrity. In fact, if you don't have the last one, I don't even bother looking at the first two. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's one after another after another. And I, I'm just going to go through a few more because they all add up to what we always talk about in terms of you know, trying to give advice to clients. And one was only buy something you'd be perfectly happy to hold if the market shut down for 10 years. Long and term. Long term. And so you don't think about, okay, okay, I wonder if the market's uh, going to take off in the next while. I'm going to, that's speculating. Okay. So he's looking at companies that he can hold for 10 years and that they will be good businesses. Not trying to think, is it, is it a good time to buy or not? He, of course, he looks at price and other things too. But the very first thing that he looks at is buying businesses. Well, when you think about it, what is stocks? Stocks are owning great businesses. Okay. Owning the Canadian banks are great businesses. Owning Apple Computer is a great business. Now, trying to have the right allocation of all these great businesses is what you pay a fund manager for. And that's what's, you know, and that's in, in a sense is what a mutual fund is or managed money is. And again, another thing, just don't watch the market too closely. Um, he said he always knew he was going to be rich. And that's so, hilarious. Yeah. One of his quotes, and risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And you think about a lot of these day traders, when you go back in the past, when the market's going straight up, regardless of, you could have thrown darts and done well, all of a sudden everybody becomes geniuses. And there's people quitting their jobs to become day traders. And that usually didn't end well for most of them. Um, you know, you only have to do a few things right in your life, so long as you don't do too many things wrong. <laughs> And uh, a lot of truth to that, as we all know. But this is, you know, he's got a pile of money. He's one of the richest men in the world. And so they're saying, what are you going to do with your money? Well, most of it is going to charity. And so they asked him, well, what about your kids? This is, I'll give my children enough money so they can, would feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. <laughs> That's great advice. And uh, I wonder and that, if his kids, I wonder if his kids are as smart with money as he is. 
I would hope some of this is the chip off the old block. It's got to rub off, right? It's got to rub off. Sitting around the dinner table, I'm sure these quips come up all the time. Do you think they started investing before 11? (laughs) 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 And is 11 fifth grade? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. It may be fifth grade. I'm not sure. But, you know, the light can go from green to red without pausing at yellow. And so that he's talking about the stock market. All of a sudden it goes up. It can go down just as fast. And we've seen that. Look what happens when all of a sudden there's a, a, an invasion in Ukraine or a war. Uh, look what happens when there's a pandemic. It's not like all of a sudden, well, let's sit and pause for a week and figure this out. The market drops tremendously very quickly. So it, you know, he's saying that's why you buy great businesses. They will work through all this. And they have the, they're able to figure things out. And the smartest people we've always mentioned are the CEOs trying to run the business and pivoting when things change in life. So it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five years to ruin it. And one of his famous ones is whether we're talking about socks or stocks. I like buying quality merchandise when it's marked down. <laughs> there you go. And this, he likes a good buy. He likes a good buy. And when think, when prices drop, that's when he's buying or when he feels that they're undervalued yet, it's a great business. So he wants to buy quality. And he wants to buy things that are, are, are less expensive. So when you see markets dropping, it's not a time to panic. It's a time to look at is it's really an opportunity. Because if gas prices go down, I saw one gas station the other day. It was down about oh eight cents per, compared to another one. There was a lineup. Yeah, it, yeah. It's weird when the stock market goes down slightly. There's no lineup. <laughs> Good point. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Mitch, we're going to talk about common TFSA pitfalls and how we don't fall in. Yeah, so the tax-free savings account, the TFSA, is it's a great tool and it should be used in many different ways and there's lots of benefits to them, and, but there are also a lot of ways that you can definitely mess up using it. And the, the first one is to avoid making withdrawal and replacing the same withdrawal in the ca- same calendar year. You can make withdrawal from your TFSA at any time with no tax consequences. It's going to grow tax-free and there's no fees to take it out. However, a withdrawal does reduce your contributions made during that year. The amount withdrawn will only be added to your TFSA contribution limit the following year. This rule applies if you had the TFSA fully maximized. So the full, the full amount, as long as you were born in 1991 or earlier, is 81500 in contributions. So if you take out $10,000 hypothetically for a large expense in June and you have $10,000 in your bank account and you want to put it back, you're unable to put that back until the following year. And if you do put it back that year, you're going to be penalized 1% per month for that uh, over contribution. So you're going to have to wait until January the following year to put that 10,000, but you also get a new 
6,000 currently every year. So it'll be 16,000 you can put in the following year. Yeah, that's quite a stiff penalty too. 1% a month, just to put in perspective, 10 grand, that's $100 a month. Okay, it's not loan sharking, but it's, uh, it's up there. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty penal. Yeah, and I, I've, got a, I've got a great story in a few seconds here for that one. Uh, the, the, there was a story last year in 2000, 2021, and the, another pitfall that you should avoid is multiplying problems. When investing in a TFSA, you should be careful about multi, uh, avoiding multiple risks, such as volatile investments and TFSA over contributions. In 2021, the CRA was asked to comment about a scenario where an individual had over-contributed to a TFSA accidentally and used the money to purchase shares of a company that went bankrupt shortly after. As a result of the bankruptcy, the value of the investment in that stock, it, it went to zero. The CRA was asked how the individual would reduce the excess TFSA amount if there is no money left to withdraw from the TFSA. Would the CRA be able to waive the penalties for this case? And uh, the CRA responded that if the individual could not withdraw the excess TFSA amount, the CRA would have no authority to waive the penalties. So that until the TFSA contribution room grows enough to reduce the excess TFSA contribution, this person is going to be charged 1% every month. And the only way to fix this is to wait until that contribution room grows, which is 6,000 per year currently. It, this is so painful. If, depending upon how large this over-contribution is, you could be paying 1% per month on that for years. And yeah, so on 80,000, that's $800 a month. For Thanks. years. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, yeah, that one doesn't make sense. But uh, again, going back to having high-risk investments in a TFSA, uh, you know, we're not, I'm not a big fan of those because you, get to, you can actually lose all or part of your TFSA room. Yeah, knowing how market gains and losses impact your future contribution limit is certainly something you should keep track of and keep in mind at all times. People want to sometimes roll the dice and put in a risky stock and hope that they win big and get that tax-free growth. But uh, the exact uh, example before, it's, it might not be worth it. Holding a volatile investment in TFSA, uh, it, you don't get to use a capital loss. So if it's in a non-registered account and you, if that investment goes to zero, like that previous example, at least you get to use that as a capital loss against any capital gains in your non-registered account. So at least if you're rolling the dice there and you lose it all, you get to use that loss for something. And secondly, uh, the if the amount withdrawn next year, you're going to lose that contribution limit as we explained, as I explained earlier. So it, you should keep track of your contributions to avoid costly penalties. That 1% per month, as we mentioned, is, is very large. It accumulates fast. Uh, even if it was just that 10,000 I mentioned earlier, that as Don mentioned, that's $100 a month just right there. But if it's 80,000, that's $800 a month, which is about, was that $9,200 a year until you finally get contribution limit to, to get there. Yikes. It's, it's extremely penalizing and you should watch out for that. And another thing is don't use your TFSA for day trading. Like RSPs and other accounts, you can manage it on your own. But if you start day trading at a TFSA to hope to avoid all those taxes, capital gains, uh, the CRA could deem it that it's actually a business. And it's going to end up being taxed as business income. So those dividends, interest, and gains are going to end up being taxed as business income, which totally defeats the purpose of having a tax-free savings account right there. Uh, so, so at the end of the day, um, you know, speak to your financial advisor, get some good advice on your TFSA, because I know uh, both Mitch and I and our whole team come across situations that did not make sense to 
and put at risk a lot of risk of not only a big penalty, but also their whole financial plan of using tax-free investments to fund their retirement. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. DonFox.net to find out more. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We are coming right back with our last segment. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. The ABCs of estate planning. Is it that easy, Don? (laughs) Well, it's a little complex. And uh, hence why we are often used. Um, in fact, um, our clients kind of go through stages. So you got the clients that start accumulating and just basically pre-authorize checks out of the bank every month and start to build up uh, an investment amount. And then that's for retirement planning. And then we work out a retirement plan from all their savings. But eventually they get to the age that they think, okay, I'm not going to be using all these funds. How do I wind this down? And so that really, at the end of the day, is what estate planning is. And the very first thing that drives an estate plan is your wills and power of attorneys. I can't say this strongly enough. You must get those in order. And also not a bad idea to have a second set of eyes on these. So we often look at, well, I probably look at about 50 wills every year, just not that we're lawyers, but simply because we see enough of them and we understand the situation and particularly the uh, the family dynamics that we say, okay, did you really mean to you know, have this much going to one child versus another child and, and so forth? So, or some, or tax issues that may arise. Um, for example, giving a cottage to a child and RSPs to another one. Well, that may not be a fair deal. So again, looking at the assets. Um, funeral arrangements is another part of an estate plan, sort of, but at the end of the day, it's a cost to the estate. And so we're, we're, um, we're not a big fan of, getting your uh, prepaid funerals, but prearranged funerals are an excellent idea so that everything's organized. The, the funeral home n- knows what's going on. They know what, you know what you've picked out and whichever way you're going to be buried or, or what have you, it's all going to be done. And they, it's all organized. These decisions don't have to be made. Why do you not like prepaid? Prepaid because now you're basically taking the funds out and buying it. Yeah. And it's, it, I don't think it's a great investment. I guess it's an easier step. So if you've got plenty of money, possibly that's an option. But I, I do think things do change. And uh, so I, I like to keep people's monies in, in the client's pockets longer rather, and, and rather than use that money for when they're no longer around. Right. Pre-arranged definitely makes sense. Um, and, and really what a financial planner should do is your net worth before tax and your net worth after tax. Because it's often misleading because you look at a client's net worth and well, if, if all their money is in RSPs, they got to pay tax on that money. And, or if there's a large capital gain because of a cottage, then they got to say, okay, what's the tax bill going to be on that? So what is it when it boils down? That's really the after tax amount. And that's what your estate would get. So that's an estate net worth versus your living net worth. So it's, 
it is very common for us to see people with net worth well over you know five million plus ten million dollars you know it, it doesn't take long these days with the real estate prices way up houses cottages rsps investments in fact a lot of our clients who are in their 60s often that's when they're inheriting money these days from their from their parents who are now in their 80s and 90s so they often get an influx of cash there too so what should you do well you should look at possibly simplifying your life in a state Take, if you have a cottage, have that talk. Do, they, do the kids really want the cottage? How are you going to split up this? Don't let them fight, out, fight for it after. It's one of the most emotional assets there is. Um, if you have a U.S. home, you, you may want to sell it beforehand because the U.S. taxes and the state, it's just more cumbersome. And talk about easier just to not have a U.S. property. Uh, and also, you, by selling it yourself, you'll probably get a good price rather than having an executor who really just wants to get rid of it at that stage and sell it. I, they're under, they have to sell it for market value, but again, it's just another layer of, of complexity for the executor to look after. Um, in fact, if you have more properties, if, you are, if you've accumulated properties, it's not a bad idea to sell them gradually before you die. Again, for the same reason, why, if you have five different rental properties, all of a sudden you've got to sell five. And the executor, that tax on those is due in April, the following year of death. So, you know, it, the, it could be due seven months later or as long as a year and six months later. So they, the executor has to come with a big tax, write a check to the government. So they may have to sell properties in short order. Some properties are easier to sell than others. But right now, of course, everything sells simple, quickly, but that's not always the norm. Uh, a big thing, a big key that Mitch and I and, our, and myself do all the time is look at avoiding the 53.53% tax bracket. And this may mean trying to bring in a lot of income before you pass away. And particularly, it's great when there's two spouses alive because now you can income split. You can have both, inc both parties earning, say, 95,000 a year, earning, paying less than 35% tax you might lose some of your old age security, but you do have to look at the pros and cons. And right now, you certainly could earn 81000 each and still get your full old age security. So again, it's taking a look at the old age security. Don't let the old age security wag the estate planning tail, okay? <laughs> or dog, rather, same idea. But you understand what I'm saying. At the end of the day, it's looking at the big picture and getting a very tax-efficient estate plan. And... When it comes down to it, going back to Warren Buffett quotes, you know, rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And that, <laughs> and that comes that that also applies to estate planning. There you have it. Uh, we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net and call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another award winner. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.